Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to another dazzling episode of Haunted Up North, the probably quite good podcast dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK. I'm your host, Victoria, and boy, gee whiz, do I hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today. Today is a day where we're going to be heading back to a county we've already visited here on Haunted Up North. I didn't expect to revisit it so soon, not because I didn't want to, I just try and mix locations up a bit so I'm not too focused on one particular region over another, or the others, all of the others in Britain, and indeed the world. But I came across a story entirely by accident as I was researching material for the Haunted Some More episode about the Ten Bells pub in Spitalfields, London, which is an upcoming episode. By the time this episode goes out, it won't be on Patreon, but it is coming. So I came across this story by accident, like I say, and don't ask me how, it just happened. And I really couldn't resist doing an episode about it. Like now. Fate just randomly presented it to me. If you present it, she will come. Anyway, enough of that. But how would you like to hear, through the hole in your ear, some rather frightening stories about the sinister entity, Titi, a sinister entity that during the 1990s wreaked havoc on a street, not just a house, but a street, in West Horton Bolton in Greater Manchester, England. England? I forgot that was meant to be a question, (laughs) not a statement. But if you would like to hear some rather frightening stories about a sinister entity, stick around. If not, stick it up your bottom. Don't stick it up your bottom. Stick with this instead, and listen to me talk about the titty. I think in terms of great podcast episode introductions, that is one of the worst that's ever existed. If there's an award for the worst podcast episode introduction ever, please give it to me. But yes, the county I referred to but a few seconds ago is the county of Lancashire, which I referred to quite a bitty in my special Guest Sunday interview in Hun number 7. Bolton is indeed traditionally, at least in Lancashire, though Greater Manchester is now its own metropolitan county and Bolton is now officially in Greater Manchester. It's a metropolitan county like Merseyside, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, West Midlands, and Tynan Weir. I don't understand it properly, but I think I've said the correct words needed to not get into trouble about correctly saying or communicating what things are and aren't. But metropolitan counties basically cover large urban areas outside of London, and that's what Greater Manchester is, and it includes the metropolitan districts of the City of Manchester, the City of Salford, Bury, Oldham, Rochdale, Stockport, Thameside, Trafford, where they've got the big shopping centre, Wigan, and Bolton. Bolton. I've been watching... <laughs> For the last two years, or something like that, ever since the first lockdown happened here in Britain, uh, I've been watching on Netflix, while I've been working from home, old episodes of Heartbreak High, the Australian high school teen TV drama of the 1990s. On a lunchtime, obviously. 
And there's a character in that called Bolton who was in it for many series, so whenever he appeared on screen, I'd think of Bolton in Greater Manchester. And now, whenever someone refers to Bolton in Greater Manchester, I think of Bolton from Heartbreak High. That's quite funny, isn't it? Netflix are doing a new Heartbreak High, by the way, if anyone is interested. It's an eight-episode reboot that's supposed to be coming out sometime this year. And did you know there are 210 episodes of the original series? Because I do. Because I watched every single one. Every single lunchtime for the past two years. And although I was really into most of it, by the end I was sort of semi-crying into my my not homemade vegetable soup. My heartbreak high lunchtime, not homemade vegetable soup, so I wouldn't recommend anyone else doing that. Not the whole 210 episodes anyway. But eight episodes seems like a total breeze compared to that, so I am looking forward to watching them when it finally gets aired. So yeah, Bolton. Bolton off of Greater Manchester, not Alan Bolton off of Heartbreak High, is the subject of our latest instalment of Haunted Up North. But not the whole of Bolton a specific part of Bolton called West Horton. West Horton is a town with a population of about 25,000 humans. I can't account for dogs and cats and birds and badgers and things like that, but in terms of humans, it's got 25,000 of them living in it. It's four miles southwest of Bolton, so there's the metropolitan district of Bolton, which is the one that West Horton is in, and then there's the town of Bolton, which isn't the same. But the town of Bolton <laughs> is in the metropolitan district of Bolton. Jesus, this isn't, it's not even, I don't even need to go on about it this much. I've bitten off more than my face can chew here, but that's where it is. West Horton is four miles southwest of the town of Bolton. Five miles east of Wigan, don't know if it's the town or what, and 13 miles northwest of Manchester. I presume that means the city. I hope you've all got your maps out for this and that you're paying very close attention, but in simple terms, which is probably what I should have done to start with, West Horton is a town in Greater Manchester <laughs> in the northwest of England, inside the historical boundaries of the county of Lancashire. Yay! West Horton was once a centre for coal mining cotton spinning and textile manufacture, and it's got a really cool, distinctive water tower called the Sniddle Water Tower, which was built in 1914 and is now a private residence. It looks a bit like something Jonathan Creek would live in. It's obviously round, like a windmill, and made of lovely red brick, and there's more lovely red brick West Horton charm in the form of a terracotta town hall and Carnegie Library, so it all sounds rather nice, doesn't it? Go online to read more about West Horton, please, because you know what I'm like, I can sit here all day telling you in quite a lot of detail about the place where ghosts are supposed to live without ever getting to the bits that you've tuned in for in the first place, which is obviously ghosts. The ghosts that live in the place. Ghosts. My friend Joss, who listens to this show and knows I have a particular fondness for pronouncing certain words like the Queen, or how I think the Queen would probably say them, a habit I've actually picked up from him, uh, he often messages me after he's finished a Haunted Up North episode with just the word ghosts, <laughs> which I, I like to think is his stamp of approval for the story he's just heard, whichever one it is that he's got to. So yeah. One last little bit of information about West Horton before we get to the ghosts. 
West Horton consists of several former villages and hamlets, each with their own distinctive characters, including White Horse, Overhalton, Fogates, Checkerbent, Hunger Hill, Hunger Hill, Daisy Hill, Sniddle, I guess? Is it Snydale? S-N-Y-D-A-L-E, Hart Common, Marshbrook, Dobbrow, and Wingates. I said Wingates in that voice because that's where the ghosts we're going to be talking about today come from. Naughty, naughty ghosts. So there's a particular street in Wingates that the Manchester Evening News has recently described as having been, at one time, so haunted you had to sign a waiver to move there. I presume that it's okay to reveal the name of the streak, uh, seeing as the Manchester Evening News has already revealed its location to the world, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you that this particular so haunted you had to sign a waiver to live there street is called... Wait for it. Wait for me to tell you. Wingate's Grove. The haunting of Wingate's Grove, or the West Horton Poltergeist, as it's more commonly referred to, is often compared to that of the Enfield Poltergeist, a paranormal phenomena that harassed and demoralised a North London family in the late 1970s, which we'll talk about soon, I promise, because although many of you will have already heard that story before, the fact it's got a North London backdrop means, as, as was the case with the Highgate Cemetery vampire means it's fair game to be included as a full-on Haunted Up North episode. But the Enfield Poltergeist was basically a very famous case and it went on to inspire a number of horror films and TV shows. There's a book called This House is Haunted by Guy Lyon Playfair, who was one of the lead investigators in the Enfield Poltergeist case, which is highly recommended by me if you want to know more about that case in the meantime. There are certain elements embellished and, I have to say intentionally, altered for dramatic effect in films like The Conjuring 2 and The Enfield Haunting, which was a 2015 TV adaptation of said events. And though they are really entertaining, I'm just a bit of a stickler for keeping facts as facts, or at least educating people as to the facts behind the drama. So This House is Haunted, the book by... Guyline Playfair is both an extremely scary read and a very first-hand account of the events that unfolded there in that little house in North London. Do give that a read if you'd like to know more about the reality of what the situation was. But on a lighter note, I'd also recommend, uh, in, in 1992, this is one of my favourite programmes ever, it's one of my favourite TV films ever, In 1992, the BBC put out a supposedly, uh, supposedly at the time, live paranormal investigation into a series of hauntings that had reportedly taken place inside the home of a single mother living with her two children on Halloween night. And it was aired on Halloween night, and I watched it on Halloween night when I was quite little, and although it was not a real documentary, and was in fact a mockumentary, which, watching it now... Now that I'm an adult, I can very much see that it was a mockumentary. It still absolutely terrified me at the time when I first watched it. And it's an experience I'll talk about in more depth when we do do an episode about the Enfield Poltergeist. But that uh, Ghost Watch, it's called. Ghost Watch is this 1992 BBC TV film. I forgot to tell you the title. 
But yeah, Ghostwatch was based on the Enfield experience as well, so if you can get your hands on that, watch it. Possibly in preparation for the aforementioned future episode. Because I can't talk about the Enfield poltergeist without mentioning BBC's 1992 Ghostwatch. And even though we now know it was fake, it's still got fantastic horror direction. And some bits are incredibly frightening, and there's genuine genius at work there. So yeah, BBC's Ghostwatch. Find it and watch it. But yes, there are lots of parallels between the West Horton and the Enfield poltergeist. Mainly because the hauntings I'm about to tell you about took place in seemingly quiet and altogether unextraordinary suburbs. And when I say unextraordinary, I don't mean <laughs> naff or boring. It's the same sort of setting that made the 1982 film Poltergeist so uncannily alarming. Because you've got this spirit or spirits causing unprecedented chaos inside an everyday loving family home. And there's a horrible sense of the paranormal invading the normal. And this is why I think we're so especially fascinated by the Enfield poltergeist, and why the West Horton poltergeist is just as fascinating too. So Wingate's Grove in West Horton is, if you look at it on Google Maps, or wherever you look at your virtual maps, maps, map, 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 is, I don't think anyone who lives or lived there would be offended to hear, just really, or it looks that way anyway, like your average British street. It's tree-lined, with lots of nice red brick semis. That's semi-detached houses, for those of you who don't know what the word semis refers to. Two separate houses that are attached to each other, so you can sometimes hear each other through the walls. I live in a terraced house, so I can hear. Why, 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 why am I telling you this? But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to keep going. Um, I can hear two separate loads of neighbours through my walls. On one side, I have an elderly couple who are both quite hard of hearing, and though they're very lovely, they shout at each other in booming voices, and one day I even heard them arguing about sausages. On the other side, I have a couple who own two Spanish water dogs, and I sometimes hear one of them shout obscenities in the shower. Not one of the dogs, one of the humans. But getting back to Wingate's Grove, though it appears to be something of a peaceful, sleepy suburb, it has, as described by Manchester Evening News, a dark secret attached to its not-so-distant history. Throughout the 1990s, the street was terrorised by a poltergeist that attached itself to not just one house, but two, possibly more, tormenting the families who lived there for literally years. The hauntings began in 1993 when, in one Wingate's Grove residence, an oily substance started running down the walls of their family house, and their toddler declared he'd been talking to a little man in his room. Random pools of water would appear upon ceilings, and objects would fly about the rooms of their own accord. After maintenance workers could find no explanation as to the cause of the oily wall phenomena, the family turned to the church for help and an exorcism was carried out, after which the disturbances ceased. Five years later, however, in 1999, reports of paranormal activity returned to Wingate's Grove, but in a property two doors down from the original affected house, leading the occupants to believe that instead of being banished from the town of West Horton, the poltergeist had simply moved and attached itself to another family. One resident, Laura, who was 12 years old at the time, said she knew there was something sinister going on as soon as she stepped inside the building. 
I begged my mum not to move in, she said. I didn't like the feel of it. I didn't feel comfortable. When things started happening, my mum would say it was the ghost of my granddad, but I said it wasn't. I just knew there was something there. It felt like I was walking into someone's personal space. I didn't want to walk through the door. When the first alarming incident occurred, Laura was with her brother, conspiring to play a prank on their friend, who was asleep in the living room. All of a sudden, as they were running along the staircase, Laura's brother let out a horrifying scream. Looking down at his foot, Laura realised he'd cut it clean open on a picture frame that was standing on the staircase, though only moments before she had seen it hanging, fixed securely to the wall. In Laura's words, they had literally just walked on the stairs, and if it fell, it wouldn't stand up. If he stood on it, it would have slipped. It was like a force was holding it in place. A string of further scary incidents occurred during the time in which Laura lived in the house on Wingett's Grove. Her dad would regularly detect a ghostly presence at the bottom of the stairs. The heating would persistently break, and one night, while her brother's girlfriend was sleeping over, Laura awoke in the early hours to find her standing in her room and silently staring at her, presumably as she slept. Dozens of dead crows were once found scattered about the garden and in various surrounding areas about the house. And not only that, but the oily substance that back in 1993 had poured down the walls of their neighbour's house now dripped down the surfaces of Laura's bedroom, causing her posters to crinkle and fall down. The stench of rotting eggs became a regular peculiarity detected about the residence, while Laura's nephew had made a strange new invisible friend he called Big Guy. From little man to big guy, <laughs> he's grown in the space of five years. Laura, who would often observe him while supposedly speaking to this entity, says, He would sit there in the corner of the room, babbling away. When asked who he was talking to, he would say, Big Guy. He kept doing it in the same place, and would point right up to the corner. So this bit about the big guy, there are a few sources I've found that state it was apparently the little man mentioned in reference to the previous house in 1993 that haunted this second house in 1999. I'm not sure which account is the correct one because those direct quotes from the lips of Laura herself made me think perhaps the big guy ghost is the right one to associate with the 1999 house. But the little man ghost is one I couldn't really brush under the carpet because the stories I read about it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because whether he haunted the 93 house or the 99 one, he's described as having sat upon the children's beds talking to and playing with them as often as five times a week. It just adds a bonus bit of creep, doesn't it? Those finer details of what either little man or big guy got up to even though he could have been a really nice ghost who was simply being sweet and welcoming to people living inside his house. But you just never know, do you? And anyway, I wanted to expand that story for a little extra entertainment for your ears. Laura. Remember her, before I rudely interrupted? Laura even experienced her own brush with an unseen being whilst watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer with a friend. As the two of them sat, glued to the television, she heard, from her position upstairs, the front door open, a set of keys being placed upon a hook, and the sound of footsteps walking about the kitchen. 
Presuming the noises to have been made by a brother, Laura became confused when he failed to appear almost 20 minutes later. As she got up to investigate, the figure of her sibling appeared at the bottom of the stairs, stating that he'd only just returned home that very second, leaving Laura to wonder exactly who or what she'd heard moving in the kitchen. Though she moved out of this house at the young age of 16, Laura's time at Wingert's Grove still affects her to this day, almost 20 years later. She says, I've suffered with anxiety since, to the point where the whole thing about the street is on my doctor's note. The last five months we lived there, I slept in a bed with my mum and dad, because I was that scared. That's when things got really bad. I kept seeing people stood at the door. I fell asleep facing my wall because I was terrified of turning over. If I needed to go to the toilet in the night, I would hold it in. A lady named Karen Walton now lives in Laura's old home and has done so since 2006 when she had to sign a disclaimer before she purchased the property. Not only did the waiver specify that she was not permitted to use a Ouija board or perform any other type of black magic at the address, she was also disallowed from moving in if she brought or planned to bring up small children inside the residence. I did read a report from manchestersfinest.com that said there was a rumour that the Wingert's Grove disturbances began after a Ouija board sitting was performed in the early 90s, so it's possible that section of the waiver could be to do with something relating to that. But though she hasn't been exposed to any supernatural activity, Karen has heard from various Wingetts Grove locals that the ghost of an old man is reported to haunt the landing of her house. However, she is yet to catch a glimpse of this particular apparition, and the tenant who moved into the original 93 house, where the activity appeared to have begun in the first place, said she never experienced anything untoward either, apart from the unexplained activities of a bedroom window that would open repeatedly all by itself. Interestingly, but also tragically, there's a graveyard near Wingetts Grove in West Horton Cemetery that contains around 200 bodies of the 1910 Pretoria Pit Disaster victims. The Pretoria Pit Disaster was a mining explosion that killed 344 men and boys in Overhulton in West Horton. Some people believe that this incident and the sheer amount of deaths it was responsible for is linked to the hauntings at Wingate's Grove, which draws some extra parallels between this story and that of the Herman family haunting, which the movie Poltergeist is thought to be inspired by. If you'd like to know more about that, then please do sign up for Patreon to hear all about it. On the subject of the spirits of the Pretoria mining disaster being responsible or connected to the goings-on at Wingetts Grove, which I don't want to be disrespectful to the relatives of those who suffered such agonising loss in the wake of this catastrophe by suggesting the ghosts of their loved ones and inflicting pain and torture upon the living, but I did find another story related to the poor miners of Pretoria, which describes the experiences of those travelling along the road that runs very close to the site of the disaster. It's a road called Platte Lane, and there have been numerous tales of an eerie, unexplained mist that descends upon the road, along with sightings of eyes peering at drivers from inside the bushes that grow there, and shuffling figures moving along the edges of the road. 
The effects of the two houses on Wingate's Grove appeared to spill out into the rest of the street during one time or another, with residents describing the sensation of feeling their beds shaking underneath them and spooky voices being heard in the dead of night. However, in more recent years, no further activity from within Wingate's Grove has been reported. Yet. Stick it up your bottom. An article from the Bolton News describes the entire town of West Horton, not just the location in which the houses of Wingate's Grove sit, but the entire town of West Horton is described in this article as being the most haunted town in England. Author Malcolm Greenhalge, in his book It Happened in Lancashire, tells some extra exciting tales concerning additional haunted buildings and houses of West Horton that harbour spooks within their walls. Cue more scary ghost noises. According to Malcolm, a house on Tempest Road was afflicted in the same year as the original Wingate's Grove haunting by three ghosts who were said to have made water drip from ceilings and thrown crockery around the room. The ex-servicemen's club is haunted by a woman dressed in bright red, while in the Labour Club at 33 Chorley Road, staff and patrons have been subjected to the eerie, unexplained sound of footsteps. The Wheat Sheaf at 106 Market Street has a ghost who appears, then disappears, but leaves behind a shadow that stays for a few seconds before vanishing along with its owner, and the dog of a former landlord would sit and bark at a specific room, refusing to enter it. And in fact, there are quite a few places in nearby Bolton, the town, not the district, that also boast quite spooky reputations. For example, the Albion Hotel on Moor Lane, where, in the late 1970s, the female owner felt an invisible hand grab her bottom in the bathroom. The Alma Inn at Bradshaw Gate, where the smell of cigar smoke overwhelms the ladies' toilets. The spirit of Minnie Scott, a woman who was murdered during the 1940s, appeared to a teenager in 1987 as a strange mist at the top of a staircase. And in the Derby Arms on Derby Street, a pipe-smoking phantom has been witnessed inside the living room. The Churchgate public house is cursed by sounds of childlike cries supposedly issued by the spirit of an offspring whose mother died from being thrown out into the cold after becoming pregnant by her employer. During the 1950s, the bones of a cavalier whose ghost is thought to haunt the bar and cellar were found, and a dog has also been seen running upstairs, where, upon further investigation, no dog is ever to be found. At Hawleithwood Manor House, a phantom runner rushes up and down the staircase, and an old woman has been glimpsed in the kitchen, along with two men, one dressed in black and the other dressed in green. At the Octagon Theatre, a wardrobe mistress named Vida Swift, who died inside the building, still walks the corridors and stage control box, and the sound of running footsteps and breathing, along with the sensation of icy hands gripping people's shoulders and turning on taps, has been experienced in the old Three Crowns pub, Deansgate. At the Ye Old Man and Scythe, on Churchgate, a customer found her hands inexplicably covered in blood, and the ghost of an eight-year-old girl named Jenny tugs on skirts, pinches people, and moves objects around. 
A Roman soldier has been spotted in the beer garden, and a phantom dog has been seen running between chairs in the museum room. At a private residence in the Hunger Hill area, an old woman has been seen and heard to say, I am here to tuck you in. Whilst, in the same residence, disembodied footsteps, the vision of an old man and a ghostly hand appearing around a doorframe have too been encountered. In another house, for several nights, a couple heard the sound of a crying infant coming through their bedroom wall. Cries which abruptly stopped when the woman placed her hand upon the wall in a bid to comfort the child. Oh, Um, there are more, many more, in fact, stories of haunted locations about Bolton that I'm sure you'd love to hear about, and perhaps I'll revisit these stories on Patreon in an episode of Haunted Some More. However, to list them all here would create too much of a big old readout listy list, and I think you might get sick of hearing my voicey voice. so we'll save them for another day. Or perhaps, if anyone would like to send me any spooky things they've personally experienced in Bolton or West Horton, then whack us an email at hauntedupnorth at gmail.com with the details, and I'll read them out on here. Malcolm Greenhalge's book It Happened in Lancashire looks to have some good reviews online, so I reckon I'm going to buy that sometime soon and give it a read. I'll let you know what I think of it. I'm sure there are even more supernatural delights about historical Lancashire in there that will be worth sharing in future episodes as well. But I'm afraid that's it for this episode. I'm excellent at waffling on at the beginning of these things, but I'm rubbish at signing off in any kind of remotely artful manner. I'm just like, there's your ghost. Okay, now bye! I'm so silly. Ask any of my friends and they'll tell you I'm just the silliest person, like, ever. By the way, if you listened to my reading of Charles Dickens's The Signalman back in episode number 6 and enjoyed it, the tale, I mean, I've added a link on Patreon to the BBC's A Ghost Story for Christmas dramatisation of it. Anyone can access this, it's not a private link, because it's not my link, it's someone else's link. I don't own it. So get yourself on over there to patreon.com slash hauntedupnorth and watch a visual representation of Charles Dickens's The Signalman, if you like. It's really frightening. Ask any of its friends and they'll tell you. It's really, really frightening. Thanks for listening, everyone, and for letting us inject a bit of northern soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live West Horton and all who haunt her, and may her power forever compel you to never presume that you don't smell of poo, because you do. You don't really smell of poo. I'm only joking, because I'm just absolutely so incredibly silly. See you later. Bye! was sort of semi-crying into my my not homemade vegetable soup.